Uh, there, there is something behind me. You might have noticed we've had a few technical difficulties with our, with our screen over the last number of Sundays. Uh, we, we are working on that, and by we, I mean the college IS department is working on that. Uh, part of the working on it means the TV that's normally at the back that I can look at is not turned on right now, so I'll just awkwardly every once in a while maybe have to look over my shoulder. I apologize for that. We're calling this series, as I've said before, Living Sacrifices, because we know that following Jesus does sometimes require us to make sacrifices. The Lord Jesus on the cross, we know, was the ultimate and complete sacrifice for our salvation. We're going to be commemorating that at the end of our service. But we also know the Lord does call us sometimes to make sacrifices for him, to lay down things, even things that are fine and good, because he's calling us to greater faithfulness. And today we're going to look at the sacrifice that might be required uh, in steadfastness in prayer. So we've got a picture of a guy that you probably will not recognize. Anybody know who that man is? A lot of shaking heads. Chad knows. Who? Yeah, that's, that's uh, Sir James Dyson. Very good. Does, does that make more sense now? James Dyson, vacuum cleaner guy, right? Back in the late 1970s, James Dyson had an idea for a new type of vacuum cleaner. In particular, he wanted to make a vacuum cleaner that did not need disposable bags. He wanted a bagless canister vacuum cleaner, and he was passionate about this. He spent five years working on his design out in his shop. He made something like 5,000 prototypes of this vacuum cleaner before he was convinced that he had it right. By 1983, he had one ready for market. Problem, no one in the United Kingdom wanted it. None of the vacuum cleaners thought, that manufacturers thought this was a good idea. Why? Because they made more money selling replacement bags than they made selling vacuum cleaners, and so they didn't want to lose that income stream. And so they told him, we're not interested. However, A company in Japan showed some interest, and they licensed his design and started producing these vacuum cleaners throughout the late 1980s. And by 1991, he had won an award for design in Japan. With the money he had earned with his Japanese venture, he decided, if nobody in the UK wants my design, I'm just going to open my own vacuum factory, and I'm going to start building vacuum cleaners myself. And so that's what he did. Began producing by 1993. By 2001, Dyson had 47% of the upright vacuum cleaner market in the UK. By 2005, Dyson was the most profitable vacuum manufacturer in the United States. He was knighted in 2017. Currently, Sir James Dyson is worth something like $5 billion US. Remarkable story, right? I saw a picture of his boat. Uh, It was pretty impressive, to say the least. Of his long road to success, he said, I made 5,127 prototypes of my vacuum before I got it right. There were 5,126 failures. But I learned from each one. That's how I came up with a solution. So I don't mind failure. We like these stories, don't we? We like the story of the guy that just keeps persistently working hard, making one design after the next, getting a little bit better. 
even though nobody out there thinks his, his design or his machine or his book or his music or whatever is any good. And they're like, nah, we're not interested. But he stubbornly keeps going, keeps going, and finally he finds success and he ends up as rich as Croesus and even, even seems to still be a decent guy who's still married to his wife of, of like they got married in the 60s and they're still married. Like he just seems to even be a good guy who gives back to the community. We like these kind of stories. And you might be wondering, if you remember that I said we were talking about prayer today, if you've heard the scriptures, if you've looked at the, the bulletin, you're going, how does that have anything to do with prayer? Well, what I want us to look at is the idea of persistence in prayer. We have a story today, uh, one of Jesus' parables from the Gospels, that on the surface, at least, it kind of sounds similar to this story. Uh, just keep plugging away, keep pressing forward, even if you don't find success, and eventually you will. And then we kind of apply that to our lives of prayer. But is something deeper going on here? That's what we're going to look at today. If you want to turn to Luke chapter 18, Luke 18, we'll read the first eight verses. And I'd invite you to stand, as we typically do, to hear from God's word before our message. Luke 18. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterwards he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, Yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith? On the earth. This is God's word. You can have a seat. I must confess, this is one of those passages, it seems deceptively simple on the surface, and yet the more you dig into it, the more you start to have maybe even more questions than answers. I'm not going to pretend that I have all the answers, but I am going to share with you some of my efforts to sort of trace out the logic as to what Jesus is saying here. Like I said, I won't be able to nail down every point, but I am confident we can discern the big picture of what Jesus is kind of going on about here and draw some points of application to our lives. As we come to any passage in the scriptures, it's important that we consider context. Those of you that have been dutifully studying the Bible in your classes in college will know the professors are always telling you, look at the context. What's the larger context? You know, we don't want to just pull out a little passage or even worse yet, a verse, cherry pick it out and then kind of make it mean whatever we feel like making it. And people do that, unfortunately. You know, even something as simple as taken for granted as chapter and verse numbers, especially in the New Testament, are Quite a relatively recent invention. Yeah, they help us find parts of the Bible more quickly. They help us remember where things are. But for the most part, they were added long after this was originally written down. 
And sometimes they even get in the way of us making the kind of connections we should. In this case, it's probably wise to flip back a chapter to Luke 17, in particular the last half of it. Beginning at verse 20, we read, Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And then, as only Jesus can do, in verse 24, he says, For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side of the, to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. And if you're like me, you're sitting there scratching your head going, Which is it, Jesus? Is it we can't see it at all? Or is it it's going to be so obvious it's going to be like a huge lightning storm? That's a bit of a head scratcher. But it seems, it seems that Jesus is saying the kingdom is not going to come all at once the way, the way you guys are hoping and thinking it will. There's going to be a season when it is very much a reality in your midst but not visible in the way that you're expecting it to be visible and the way many of his contemporaries were hoping it would be. However, Jesus says, when it does come in full, and there's coming a day when it will come in full, there will be no mistaking it then. And not only that, if you look at the end of Luke 17, it's going to be a time of judgment, severe judgment. And implicit, right at the end, there's kind of a warning to, to Jesus' hearers. He's sort of saying, you know what, guys? Don't just take it for granted that you're going to be on the good guy side when the judgment day comes. And then Jesus tells this parable about being faithful in prayer. You know, sometimes the gospel writers provide us with a reason or an occasion for a specific parable. And Luke, in particular, seems kind of fond of this. For instance, the Good Samaritan is introduced by Jesus and this guy having a discussion about who's my neighbor and what's the greatest of the commandments and so forth. The prodigal son is introduced by some of the the teachers of the religious law being not happy with Jesus because of the kind of table fellowship he was keeping. Uh, Earlier on in the scripture we heard earlier, uh, Jesus was praying and his disciples came to him and asked him, teach us to pray. Here again, we, we have this introduced by Jesus exhorting and encouraging his followers to be steadfast in prayer and not lose heart. And as we'll see at the end of this little parable, in verse 8, losing heart seems to mean something deeper and something worse than just feeling sad or feeling a little bit depressed or discouraged. It seems to mean more like despair or giving up or even apostasy. But we'll get there in due time. So we have this little story. There's this local judge. He doesn't seem to care about anything. He doesn't fear God He doesn't care what anybody thinks. And since ancient times, these have basically been the two things that any system of justice is supposed to be founded on. In earlier times than ours, there was a stronger sense that justice was rooted in the will of God, or at least in some kind of natural law that traced its origins back to God and the way he made the world. That's maybe not quite as strong now. And of course, the other thing that law is based on, especially in our system, we talk about the British common law, right? This is, this is sort of how decisions have been made in the past, and then how people can expect legal decisions to continue to be made in the present, 
And that's what judges are supposed to look at and rely upon as a guide to how they judge cases. But this guy, he doesn't care about either of those. He doesn't care about God or God's laws, and he doesn't care about what people think or doing the right thing or even consistency in, in his legal practice as a judge. So there's this judge, and then we get our second character. There's this widow. Instinctively, we probably think of an older woman, but in, in this culture, she certainly may not have been in a pre-modern society. At any rate, she has a legal concern. doesn't say specifically what it was, but being that she's a widow probably has something to do with whatever she might have hoped to, to get from her late husband's estate has been taken away from her by some greedy extended family member, creditors, neighbors that want to take it away, whatever, and she is left destitute. And she goes to this judge and says, this is not right. I I have nothing to live on. Get justice for me. I'm being taken advantage of. And this judge, he doesn't even care at all. In a way, it's not even like he rules against her. He just doesn't even want to hear her case. He just throws her out of court. Keeps putting her off. But she won't take no for an answer. She's determined that he's going to hear her case and he's going to rule in her favor. So she keeps coming day after day after day. She finds him in the street on his way to work. She finds him after work at the tavern where he eats his supper. He goes home and there she is peering in the window when he gets into his house. He walks out of his door and there she is waiting for him when he leaves the next day. We don't know how long this is supposed to have gone on for. In any case, he gets tired of this constant nagging that she's pursuing him with, and he finally rules in her favor just to get rid of her because he's getting so tired and worn out from this. And he makes it clear. It's not because he cares about her or thinks she's right or has had a change of heart. It's just because he, he is real done with this nagging and does not want it anymore. He's not concerned about public opinion. He's just tired of being bothered. So the real questions now start to emerge, I think, for us when we know that, okay, this, Jesus says, is supposed to be about prayer, or at any rate, Luke says it's supposed to be about prayer. How do we interpret this properly and understand what this teaches about prayer and and not losing heart? Is the judge supposed to be God? Is he supposed to give us a picture of God? Well, as far as character goes, of course not. God is the opposite of this judge in terms of character, he does care deeply about justice, about what's right and wrong. Scripture tells us that God cares very much about people being oppressed unjustly and treated badly. He cares about justice and righteousness, not just as abstractions, but as ways of living, as action. He cares about people being set free from sin and brokenness that people are enslaved in, sometimes by their own choices and sometimes by the the oppression of others and frequently some combination of the two. But God and this judge do seem to have one striking similarity that we don't like to talk about, and that's that sometimes there's a delay in the answer. At least sort of. We'll get to that. The other question is, is the widow supposed to give us a picture of ourselves. Well, insofar as the widow is a picture of being needy and powerless, 
to do anything about what's most important? Yes. Insofar as she reminds us to be determined and diligent in presenting our requests, then yes, that that does give us a picture of ourselves. However, the relationship between this widow and the judge provides us with a strong contrast of our relationship before God, at least if we are, if we're saved, if our sins have been washed away, if we've been united with God as his children, then we have a real contrast here. And this seems to be the main point that we're to draw from this parable. Even an unjust and uncaring judge would, he would prefer to ignore this widow entirely, but eventually he gives in and grants her request. How much more will a good father in heaven long to hear us and answer our prayers of his people, his chosen ones, as this text says, or his elect, to use a more technical word from this passage. That seems to be the main point that we're supposed to take from this passage, and it's a glorious one, right? If even a judge who isn't a very good guy will eventually grant a request, how much more should we have confidence that our Heavenly Father wants to hear us. So then we have to ask, okay, but, but is, God, is this teaching us that God's going to answer soon or a long time from now? Because it kind of seems to be saying both. And that's what I think is most confusing about this. In verse 8, at the beginning of verse 8, It says God will answer and vindicate his people soon or speedily. But then in light of the very end and the surrounding context, it seems to speak of the reality that there's going to be a delay in this vindication. You see what I mean? The first half of verse 8 says God's going to bring justice soon. He's going to bring it speedily. And then the second half seems to say the Son of Man might be so long in coming that people are going to be tempted to lose heart. And seems to imply that probably... Some people will lose heart. That seems to be what verse 1 is saying as well. You're going to have to continue, persist in steadfast prayer and not grow faint. The, The warning, or at least encouragement, against growing faint would imply that there's a real temptation to give up, lose heart, or grow faint. So there's the challenge. Of course we know that ultimately all things will be made right. Ultimately, from passages like Romans 8, we might know that verse, that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that's going to be revealed on that day. And yet we know from our own experience, from our lives as lived, as believers, disciples of the Lord in the here and now, We know, don't we, that sometimes we pray for things, things that seem to be within the will of God, and we have an answer quite quickly, it would seem. Other times, we pray for things that seem equally to be good things, wholesome things, righteous things, things that, from all we can tell, should be in line with with what God would want, and, and we don't receive the answer we're looking for. We've all known this in one form or another. We, we, we pray for somebody to, to come to know Christ. And in some cases, before long, they, they accept him, they understand the gospel, they, they become Christians. Others, 
stubbornly resist, even though they know, even though they've heard the gospel multiple times, even though we faithfully pray for them. We pray for people to be healed, and sometimes, whether that's through just medical intervention or something that seems more miraculous, people are healed. They get better from even very severe illnesses, sicknesses, injuries. Other times, they don't. We pray for those who are persecuted for their faith. And there are those occasions where the persecutors have a, have a change of heart. They turn. They become Christians too. Other times, they continue to persist in, in their hatred, even violence. So what do we do here? Well, the, there's the obvious temptations of either just give up, which the text tells us not to do. So then what do we do? Do we just kind of stubbornly press on? Just kind of stiff upper lip, you know, and keep making another prototype of that vacuum cleaner out in the tool shed? Perhaps we can step back and see this in a bigger picture. Now, it doesn't answer all the questions that we might have, but hopefully it gives us a somewhat fuller view. Luke says that the point of this parable is to encourage people to pray and not lose heart. In many ways, though, it's about something bigger than that. It's, it's really about the certainty of God's justice in his coming kingdom. That's where the previous chapter ended, right? The, the Son of Man is going to come, and it's going to be time for judgment. Sin and evil and injustice will have no place to hide then. It'll be all over for them. The flip side is that goodness and righteousness will be vindicated and rewarded provided that we're faithful in practicing them and faithful in seeking and asking for them. At the end of the day, that's really what prayer boils down to, calling out to God that his kingdom will come. We, 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 we've, we've heard that. We've recited that so many times, right? That's the beginning of the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come. That's what so much of prayer is, is seeing the needs of the world, knowing that we can't do a whole lot about so much that goes on, and calling out to the God that we trust actually can. And when we frame our prayers in this way, we see that we're, we're doing something that, that's a lot bigger and greater than just asking God that our situation might be changed, or we might feel better about something, or have success in some area. You know, somehow, in the goodness and mercy and, and mystery of God, our prayers have a part to play in that coming kingdom and the justice and righteousness and wholeness that it brings. When we know people, and we all do, who are deceived that they don't need Jesus, that they are actually just okay on their own, but truly, they are lost without him, there's an area where God's kingdom has not yet come as it could be. When we see sickness and disease taking life and flourishing from people we know and people we love, we see an area where God's kingdom has not yet come in full, but where the, the brokenness and sin in our world is in control there. When we see people or, or ministries who are facing opposition or even persecution. And we wonder, why, why aren't these good people you know, making progress? Why, why, why are they seeming to just get beaten down and not seeing any fruit? 
There's an area where God's kingdom has not yet come as we would want, where the the ruler of this world is stubbornly resisting it. When we see our faithfulness in prayer in this light, it helps us reorient and clarify those things that we should be most diligent to pray for. We see it in this sense in this context of the bigger picture of God's kingdom and what he's doing in the world. That lifts our prayers above just mundane concerns for our own comfort or success, rather to those areas that we see that are going contrary to the will of God and against his kingdom, which grieve his heart. Those are the things that God would call us to greatest faithfulness in prayer. Seeing our prayer requests in those light, in that light, and, and especially those requests that seem to go unanswered for a long time, when we see even those ones as contained within that larger context of what God's doing, that, that helps them not to just turn into, you know, a rote kind of shopping list or a monotonous recitation of things that we give a little token mention to on a regular basis. When we see our prayer requests in the context of God's coming kingdom and what he's doing, that prevents us being just like the widow who feels like she has to kind of keep on nagging and hounding somebody that may or may not listen or care until he finally gives in out of weariness. So as we've seen, Jesus' teaching on steadfastness in prayer links up well with our series emphasis on spiritual disciplines. Because it takes, we, we admit, it takes discipline to keep on praying when we just don't seem to see any answers. When we've prayed for this person, we've prayed for this person again and again, and they just keep on living their life without really any thought for God. Maybe even they seemed like they were faithfully following him at one point, and now they aren't. And we pray and we pray, and nothing seems to happen. It requires discipline to keep praying. It requires discipline to keep on praying when problems seem so large in our world and we wonder, what, what can I do about this? The, you know, wars, violence in the world, all, all the things, you know, the state of, of Christianity in our society and, and the things we believe and how that's opposed. These are big things. It can be hard to keep on praying for those things when we feel like the problems are so large. It requires discipline to stay dedicated and faithful to praying for the most important matters when maybe we'd rather just pray about our own comfort and success. Jesus urges us to steadfastness in prayer over the long haul and for the proper things, for the most important things, for the things of his kingdom. Like any discipline, this will require sacrifices the beginning of our series. I, I use the very basic analogy of an athlete. Right? Sometimes if you're training for a championship or to play at a high level, you need to give up something sometimes. You have to be dedicated and going to the gym, you know, spending time on the weights, doing your drills. Anything that's worth achieving will require some kind of sacrifices on our part. And I joked with maybe more than one person this week, that kind of this whole series I could boil it down to just put down your phone more and pay more attention to the Lord. There's a bit of 
superficial summary, of course, but it's, it's not a bad start. We, we are a distracted people in so many ways. This comes back to our earlier message on, on stewardship, specifically stewardship of time. It's likely that we might have to set some time aside. We might have to say no to some things so that we have more time to pray in the way the Lord would call us to. This also reminds us of last week's message about solitude. We might have to intentionally cut out some things that are distracting us from this kind of prayer. Yeah, of course, so we can pray without interruption. That's, that's very basic. But even more so, it's deeper than that. Distractions don't just waste our time. They do waste our time. But they also shape our outlook. When we numb ourselves with pleasures and comforts and distractions and entertainments, it can be easy to stop caring about the things that God cares about most, right? The things of his kingdom, the, the places where we see things opposing his kingdom, right? We stop caring so much that people are lost without Jesus or that churches and ministries and fellow Christians are struggling in a variety of ways here and around the world. Our, 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 the concerns of our prayers can become quite small and shrunken if we don't be intentional about ridding ourselves of distractions and lifting our eyes higher to what God is calling us to. It can be easy for a series like this to sort of feel like, okay, one more thing to do. So I am going to give us one more thing to do, but just, just one. Here's the thing. It, one thing. I'm sure we can all do this. I'm just going to leave us with one thought to wrap up our message together. What's one thing that you can be more faithful in praying for. One, one thing. You know, we might, we might think of lots of things, but start with one. You make too big of a start, and sometimes you do good for a day or two, and then you get disappointed because you, you, you don't continue it. But I think we could all be faithful in one thing. Maybe it's somebody that doesn't know Jesus that you prayed for regularly in the past and you've kind of let that slip or, or just given up. Maybe you've become discouraged and you, you don't know what else to do. Maybe you told somebody not that long ago, we've all done this, I've done this. You say to somebody, yeah, I'll pray for you about that. And then you do one or two times and then life being what it is, you kind of forget. It falls off your radar. There, there are two more weeks in, in Lent. Two more weeks until Easter. That, that's not a long time. That's two weeks. But that might be enough to kind of kickstart this. That might be enough to start a new habit. Can we commit to daily prayer about just that one thing for two weeks, 14 days? I don't think we have much to lose. Just one thing isn't going to require us to all-night prayer vigils on our knees or anything. This would be a few minutes a day. That's not a huge sacrifice. Whatever Jesus calls upon us to lay down for the sake of his kingdom pales in comparison to the rewards he offers. Much to gain. Similar to the story we opened with, we, we may have to keep on praying 5,000 times. But the rewards, if we can even imagine the rewards, are far more than even, even billions of dollars in worldly wealth and a corner on the vacuum cleaner market 
and a 300-foot yacht that's worth millions and millions of dollars. The rewards are far more than that. The rewards are an eternal inheritance which can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for us. The rewards are that our prayers, on behalf of others, say, that don't know Jesus, our prayers might have a part to play in someone else coming into that inheritance and being able to enjoy it for all eternity. That's something I believe that is worth giving up a little bit of time on a daily basis. So I would ask us all to to commit to that. Think about that. Maybe we've got a number of things. Try to at least find one that we can commit to. And as we move toward our communion service, let's, let's apply this to those situations. Are you, are you sensing the need that the Lord's calling you to greater faithfulness in praying for someone who is lost without Jesus? Jesus died to make that person right with God. As we partake together, let's be reminded of that. Are you sensing the, the need for somebody you know to, to overcome some stubborn sin in their life that they just don't seem to be able to get beyond? Jesus rose from the dead to give them power and victory over that sin. Let's remember that as we partake together in just a few moments. Are you sensing the need to pray for somebody who's facing difficulties or, or opposition for their faith or in their ministry? Jesus is coming again to vindicate them. Let's remember that as we partake together. So I would invite those that are serving 